This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Olympics start Friday, and more than 100 Russian athletes will not compete because of doping. It's just the latest example of how players, even entire nations, try to gain an edge in sports. Roger Pelkey Jr. asks a simple question in his forthcoming book, The Edge. Why are so many people breaking so many rules these days across sport, not just the Olympics? Pelkey, a political scientist, is also the founder of the Sports Governance Center at CU Boulder. It opened earlier this year and wrestles with these types of issues. And Roger, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. You say there is a war going on for the soul of sport. What do you mean by that? Well, if you take a look at sport these days, there's a lot of controversies that occur off the field and off the track. Um, We hear about college athletes and their demand to be paid. We hear, as you said, about the Russian athletes uh, doping and maybe the Russian government being behind it. Um, These issues uh, have a a common common theme to them. Uh, Sport is in the 21st century being run by 20th century principles. Uh, And the institutions and our thinking about sport has to catch up. Uh, and the, the the debacle, and I think it's safe to call it a debacle, over the Russian Olympic team uh, is just one example of what happens when the rules governing sport haven't kept up with modern times. Okay, so it's that the rules haven't kept up with the evolution of sport. Give me a few examples. Okay, so for example, um, athletes want to perform. They want to, to get to the, the, the performance edge. They want to really break records. Nothing new about that. Nothing new about that. And if there's one thing we know about sport is that that a significant portion of athletes, more than we'd like to admit, uh, are taking performance-enhancing substances that are banned. And as that's occurred, uh, the list of substances that are prohibited, that are kept by an organization called WADA, World Anti-Doping Agency, right. has swollen to more than 300 substances. It's a long list. It's a long list. And if you think about the cost and the practicalities of managing that list, uh, the inevitable result is more violations, more controversies, more appeals, uh, and we spend a lot more time enforcing these rules rather than taking a step back and saying, well, what really matters here? What is it about sport that we care about? Um, in the book, I talk about caffeine. Um, I took some performance-enhancing caffeine this morning, yeah. uh, as do a lot of people. Uh, it turns out that caffeine is one of the most well-studied performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, many of the drugs on the WADA list – uh, aren't as powerful as caffeine. Others, we don't even know what they do. So, Are you calling for more leniency? Uh, I'm calling for more pragmatism. And uh, you could call it leniency if you want, but he- here's the principle. If the drug you're worried about doesn't offer the benefit of caffeine, why are we worried about it? It's mm. in the noise. Uh, leave it off the list. You write, though, that even caffeine um, is not black and white because caffeine pills, for instance, are banned. Am I right about that? But having five espressos is not. Yeah, that's uh, – WADA would like to see caffeine pills banned. But caffeine, because of its its ubiquity in society and everyone drinks an espresso or a coffee, um, it's on the li- it's, it's not on the list. It's okay to take. Mm. Um, so, so caffeine offers performance enhancement. And we have this idea, and this is one of those old values, that, that athletes should be pure – pure humans. They run on uh, their muscles, their training, uh, and not any external aids. Uh, and if you take a look inside the, the medicine cabinet or the, the, the supplement closet of any uh, elite athlete, uh, they're doing a lot more than running on bread and water these days. You uh, cite a 2012 survey that found 12% of athletes would dope if it were illegal and there were no consequences. And more than 5% said they would dope if it 
were legal and it would guarantee them an Olympic gold medal. Does that surprise you that that winning is more important than purity for at least a number of athletes? It it's, it doesn't. And it, all we have to do is take a look at uh, professional sports, say the, the National Football League, where athletes have uh, for years taking drugs like steroids or human growth hormone because the difference between being a, a, a journeyman elite athlete and then being an elite elite athlete is enormous in terms of fame, in terms of monetary rewards. And that's why you, know, you call it the edge because just a little bit, tenths of a second – or just the ability to, to outlast your opponent just a little bit has outsized rewards. So, of course, people are going to take those risks because a simple cost-benefit calculation favors breaking the rules. Hmm. And just to underscore a point, you're not saying that there should be no banned substances on the list, but you're, you're saying that there should be a reassessment of the ones that are on there. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. They're, they're, Okay. Um, so uh, what, else, what else I find interesting is that consequences vary widely from sport to sport, league to league. You write, get caught taking human growth hormone in the Olympics and you can be suspended for four years. But in the NFL, the penalty is four weeks. How important is consistency across sport? Yeah, it, it turns out, I mean, the reality is that like rules of sport, that it's not important at all. Uh, the National Football League is the most popular league in the United States, most popular sport. Um, and the fact that uh, occasionally athletes are caught with human growth hormone or taking steroids mm -hmm. uh, is not perceived to be a big deal. It's still very popular. People love the sport. Uh, as you say, in the Olympics, do the exact same drug, the exact same violation, and you could be out of the sport for four years. That could be your whole career. And why is that inconsistency a problem, if it is? Well, the different sports are run by, by different organizations. And um, it's very interesting because the National Football League has a big voice of the players. And the players get to help set what rules they're under uh, mm -hmm. for drugs. Uh, in the Olympics, it's not so much. Uh, the players don't have a voice. They're not organized. They don't have a players union. Uh, and it turns out when players have a voice, they, they request more lenient rules. Is that a good thing? Well, this gets to what do we think sports for? Uh -huh. And uh, I would say if you're talking about high school sports, boy, and younger, you sure don't want kids taking drugs. But if you're a multimillionaire professional athlete and uh, you want to vote to uh, legalize a drug that's uh, safe and effective, uh, then who's to say in your place of employment you can't do that? Safe and effective. Would there be other examples besides caffeine? Yeah, there's, uh, there's an, an enormous range of drugs. So, for example, um, human growth hormone uh, is a drug that's uh, – Peyton Manning in Denver was caught up in a controversy and he's been cleared of that. Um, but it's supposed to have benefits for recovery um, and it's used uh, medically. Uh, EPO, uh, the, the drug that Lance Armstrong got that's right. caught for, um, is another drug that's used for r real legitimate medical purposes. Um, if it could aid athletes in their recovery um, – Maybe it's worth asking the question. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that sport needs more of is people to ask questions. And who knows what the answers are? But at least answering, asking the questions, we might discover we, we could go down a different path. But they're pretty touchy questions to raise, aren't they? I mean, I'm even a little uncomfortable right here, right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's an example. There's a, a Scottish uh, professor uh, who was on the, uh, an advisory board of, of USA Cycling. And he said exactly what I just said. And uh, the week after he said that, he was invited off the advisory committee. Mm. Um, and this is one of the problems, though, that sport has is that it's been for, for very long controlled by a small group of insiders 
um, who who may be thinking they're doing the best for sport, but we don't hear very much from outsiders. We don't hear very much from the athletes themselves. And one could say that the system is failing, given how much doping there is. Yeah, if you, there's very few studies um, of the prevalence of doping among elite athletes, but the studies that are out there suggest that as many as 40% of elite athletes, four out of 10, uh, could be breaking the rules by taking performance-enhancing substances. Uh, less than 1% are caught. So that's a huge gap, mm. and it is a real problem for the legitimacy of sport. I was fascinated to learn that the Olympics have actually tested athletes since 1968. You'd think they'd have the system down by now. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, it's a little bit like an arms race that uh, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, uh, the drugs that were used were, were very blunt. They were easy to identify. They had obvious effects. Uh, today, uh, athletes and their doctors have very sophisticated methods of doping out of competition, uh, where it becomes very difficult to detect that they're even taking the drugs. A German documentary from 2015 alleged that doping in the Olympics is widespread, that a third of all medals won between 2001 and 2012 were awarded to athletes who later had suspicious blood tests. Meanwhile, this year, the Olympic runner Paula Radcliffe of England has said the doping scandal will, quote, taint everything we see at Rio. Is that how you will watch the games? I think we need to watch the games and we watch sport with a, with a pragmatic eye and a realization that, um, you know, these aren't people who, you know, work as teachers and lawyers and doctors during the day and then fly over to Rio and play, and, uh, play their games. Uh, these are professional athletes who have the, the advantage of modern technology, modern medical science, uh, and they're pushing the limits of what people can do. Um, and it's a remarkable sight to see. Um, and there's two ways to look at it. One is uh, some athletes may be breaking the rules. And the other way is, well, maybe we have the wrong rules. Uh, and I think that pragmatic eye uh, asking questions and asking what do we want sport to be uh, can help us to come to, to come to some peace with the realities of, of how people actually behave. But to this idea of purity, I can imagine someone listening thinking, doesn't that fly in the face of what the original Olympics were? You write in this book, The Edge, The War Against Cheating and Corruption in the Cutthroat World of Elite Sports, that we have mythologized the Olympics um, as they began. Why is our sense of them as pure amateur events wrong? Yeah, and, I, and in your language there, um, you know, today we talk a lot about purity and we focus on doping. But, you know, a generation or two ago, the focus was on amateurism. And the idea that athletes should should participate in their sport for the love of the sport. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't take commercial contracts. We still see this in college sports in the in the U.S. But there's really been a shift in the, that and in the Olympics. Absolutely. And that's the point. In the 1970s and 1980s, uh, the, the amateur ideal um, disappeared. And it was replaced with fully professionalized sports. And the Olympics survived. Uh, there's a lot more money. Uh, and many athletes would say not enough, particularly in track and field. But but amateurism has gone by the wayside. And you say that's actually a return to how the Olympics originally were, like, yeah. the, like the old timey Olympics. Yeah. If you go back to ancient Greece, uh, there is this mythology that, that the ancient Greeks uh, just ran for the love of sports. They ran naked. They didn't have any adornment. And it turns out uh, they were heroes. They had pensions. They were rewarded. They had the equivalent of what we would uh, have commercial endorsements today. Um, so they, they were unionized. They I were think. unionized. They they were not uh, in any sense uh, amateurs. And in fact, the ancient Greek language did not even have a word for amateur. How dare you play with our notions of the Olympics, Roger Pelkey? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about um, advantages, edges that have nothing to do with substances. 
because there are other ways in which athletes uh, can gain advantage, even if they don't intend necessarily to do so. More after a break, Roger Pelkey Jr. joins us. His forthcoming book is called The Edge, The War Against Cheating and Corruption in the Cutthroat World of Elite Sports. He is also the founder earlier this year of the Sports Governance Center at CU Boulder, which tackles some of these issues. So back in a moment, it's Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Roger Pelkey Jr. He's the founder of the Sports Governance Center at CU Boulder, and his forthcoming book is called The Edge, The War Against Cheating and Corruption in the Cutthroat World of Elite Sports. And given how prominent the question of doping is at the Rio games that start Friday, we've brought him onto the program. I do want to move to advantages that are not chemical in nature. Um, the question of advantage in athletes with disabilities is particularly fascinating. There was, of course, the big issue around whether the runner and convicted murderer Oscar Pistorius's blade legs gave him an advantage. But I want to focus on the story of an American swimmer, Victoria Arlen. You write about her in the book. What is Arlen's story and what does it illustrate? Yeah, Victoria Arlen uh, won four medals in the London Paralympic Games, uh, one gold and three uh, silver as a swimmer. Um, Eleven year, uh, Ten years ago, when she was 11 years old, um, and as a parent, this is a really a, a horrifying story, um, she became very ill very quickly, lost a lot of weight. Um, I'm not a doctor, but she had a condition called transverse myelitis, uh, which basically affected her uh, ability to, to move. Um, she became paralyzed and eventually sank down into a vegetative state. And she was in a hospital. Um, and she later said that uh, she could hear doctors and her parents talking, but she couldn't communicate. Uh, she was uh, in this vegetative state. Mm. Um, she emerged from that in 2010, um, thankfully for her family and for her, uh, but she was still paralyzed from the waist down. Um, and she had been a swimmer before uh, getting this condition uh, and decided to focus as part of her recovery on swimming. And it turns out she was really good. Um, and so she uh, entered competitions and applied uh, to participate in the Paralympic Games. Uh, but then there, a controversy came up. And the controversy was that uh, what kind of disability did she have? Uh, she wasn't paralyzed as a result of an accident, but because of a, a medical condition, a disease. No. And uh, it turns out that she was prohibited initially from participating uh, because her condition wasn't permanent. Uh, the idea was that she could recover. This mm. is one of the rules of the Paralympics. That you have to be permanently disabled. Right. right. You can't be injured. You can't be merely sick. Um, and this is one of those really tough cases that comes up in the Paralympics. And swimming, for example, um, there's 41 different competition categories where experts have to evaluate disabilities and try to put people into categories where the competition is fair. With the idea of not giving someone inadvertently an edge. Right. And uh, after the so – so they gave her a one-year stay on her band so that she was able to participate in London. But the year after – In the Paralympics. In the Paralympics. Okay. Um, and, but the year after, she was told she could no longer participate in, in that event. And it gets to, to a real tough question that we see across all sports, whether the Paralympics or the Olympics, which is inclusion. What are the rules for who gets to participate in the games? Um, in the Paralympics, they struggle with this all the time. And we're beginning to see this in the Olympic Games. Uh, for example, uh, over the past year, a German long jumper named Marcus Rim, uh, who lost his lower leg in a waterboarding accident when he was 12, uh, wanted to, to do the long jump in the upcoming Rio Olympics. Uh, he jumps off of his blade 
uh, which is just like Oscar Pistorius's blade. Huh. And he jumps uh, further than any Paralympian or Olympian. If he were to be admitted to Rio, he would break the world record. Right. And he is also breaking categories because where do you place him? Right. How do you label him? Right. Um, and so the, the, the track and field body that makes these decisions um, asks scientists, including one of my colleagues, Alex uh, Grabowski at the University of Colorado, to, to evaluate whether he gets an advantage from jumping off of his blade. Uh, and it turns out the scientists couldn't tell. So what do we do? We want to be inclusive. As a society, we want people to participate in the sport. But at the same time, you, you can't strap a rocket engine on your back and participate in the 100-meter dash. Um, and so it gets to be a really, really difficult set of questions that force us to ask, who are we? What do we want sport to be? Do we want people in or do we want people out? So wait, what happened to Marcus? He was banned from participating because... In, in any Olympics, he, para he, or otherwise? He's in the Paralympics. He's in the Paralympics, I see. But that whole question of crossover, right. the blurred line between Paralympics and Olympics, that we're probably going to see more of that as adaptive technology gets better, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things about Rem is you can see his blade. But if you get your eyes LASIKed and you're knocking baseballs out of the park or you're a, a, a shooter... Um, you can't see that. But is should that be allowed? There's sex testing, too, in the Olympics. Yeah, you're going to hear a lot more about that in the next two weeks. Uh, there's an athlete from South Africa named Castor Semenya who burst on the scene in 2009, really out of nowhere, um, running middle distance events, uh, who uh, is, uh, by her own admission, in this category called intersex. She doesn't fit into a nice binary male or female category, uh, but she was raised as a girl, as a female. And uh, she has caused uh, the track and field community uh, a lot of consternation about, well, how do we include her? Um, the rules for governing uh, who gets to participate in women's events uh, were thrown out last year. So you show up and you say you're a woman. Uh, right now, that's what the rules are. Uh, and she is causing a lot of debate, a lot of discussion. Uh, she may win uh, one, two, maybe three gold medals uh, because she is so fast. Uh, and it causes a lot of questions, again, about inclusion. Who are we? Who do we want to participate? But this is essentially defining what is female and what is male and not doing so simply by one's um, sex. Uh, what, right. You know, yeah, I'm trying to do yeah, this delicately. Yeah. Th that there are ways of determining sex beyond uh, purely physical characteristics. Yeah, this 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 the distinction here and the it's really important is between sex, which is a biology, and gender, which is society. Yeah. And for for more than 50 years, uh, the sporting community has has asked scientists to come up with that that biological marker that would distinguish women from men. And the more scientists study the biology of sex, the more gray it becomes. There's, there's no sharp line. And then there's the whole question within that of advantage and edge, of course. We're speaking with Roger Pelkey Jr. about his forthcoming book, The Edge, The War Against Cheating and Corruption in the Cutthroat World of Elite Sports. And we can't forget Roger about age. The New York Times wrote about the 2008 Beijing Olympics that China's gold medal winning women's gymnastics team didn't just look young. They looked childlike. One member of the team was even missing a baby tooth, as you write. Steve Penny, president of USA Gymnastics, observed, there is still what I believe unanswered questions about this issue, but there is only so much you can prove when it comes to falsified documents. Let's talk about age. Yeah, gymnastics is fascinating because uh, 
back back in the day, back in the 1950s and 60s, gymnastics was more about ballet and dance. And over the years, the the, the rules have been changed in gymnastics to give more points, uh, better scores to people who can tumble and leap. And it turns out that younger athletes have those qualities. So it's very interesting that the rules that we have created for the sport of gymnastics have created incentives to have younger and younger women, girls, participate in the sport. They favor the young. They favor the young. Yeah. And as anyone knows, it's easier to, to tumble and flip when you're younger than older. Um, and so that has created incentives, just like doping, for nations to try to skirt the rules by getting athletes under the age limit. Um, a little known fact is that Nadia Comaneci, the first perfect 10, 1976, right. she couldn't participate in Rio because she would be uh, too young. So uh, were she to were participate she today, today. now? Yeah. So the, the, the age has actually moved up? Yeah, the age has moved up because we don't want to exploit young children mm. in sport. But as the age limit has moved up, the incentives have been to have younger and younger athletes. When that happens, something has to give. And uh, in 2000 and 2008, there are these allegations that uh, Chinese gymnasts in particular um, had falsified documents allowing younger athletes to participate. We've talked about um, the desire to be first as a motivator for doping and gaining an edge. But geopolitics really is part of this as well. And I, I think we're seeing that with the Russians, are we not? Yeah. The, the, the Olympics became wrapped up uh, in politics really from the start, but it was with uh, in the 1930s with Nazi Germany um, using the Olympics as a springboard to, to announce their agenda. Uh, and then the Olympics became part of the Cold War. And doping was very much in the United States and in uh, the Soviet Union, very much a part of what the Olympics were about. Who could win more medals? Who had a better society? Uh, we haven't moved past that, mm -hmm. as we've seen. Yeah, it feels almost Cold Warry right now. It is very much so. Uh, you have uh, Russia uh, wrapped up in in state sponsored doping, uh, and you know the United States has been very quiet about it. But you know, in the 1990s, the United States faced uh, many allegations, not state sponsored doping, but systematic doping among its athletes. So it has been a pervasive issue, um, and the geopolitics are just below the surface. Right, and you can't say that it's one side more than the other necessarily. Well, or, right or now, you? well, right now, I think it's safe to say that uh, you know Russia has been an extreme offender. Mm. Um, there are certainly other nations and other athletes who are involved in doping, but nothing's been exposed to the scale of the Russian state-sponsored system. You know, the International Olympic Committee has come under fire for not banning Russia altogether from the Rio Games. And there's now this really public dispute between the IOC and the World Anti-Doping Agency over the handling of the Russian investigation. WADA and the IOC actually share some of the same top officials. I think that's really important to understand. How unusual is this moment in history? Yeah, it's it's well. The first thing to understand is that that the governance of sport involves an alphabet soup of organizations and acronyms with different responsibilities, and it's 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 very hard to parse out. It's important to also understand that that uh, anti-doping has focused on the bad athlete for years. A lot of progress has been made, but it, remarkably, there is no provision for suspending. Uh, a federation that oversees a sport or a nation that's mm. involved. It's been much more focused on the individual. It has. So in the last months, uh, we've seen a scramble to write the rules as they put the rules into play. And it turns out the IOC, the Olympic Committee, and the Anti-Doping Agency don't agree. And it's a pretty messy, ugly public fight right now, which is why there are uh, still over 270 Russians going to be in Rio.
Earlier this year, as you launched CU's Center for Sports Governance, you had a visitor in your classroom, a cyclist named Lance Armstrong. Um, he, he finally admitted to doping, of course, and has fallen from grace. His Tour de France titles were stripped. He's banned from the sport for life. What did you take away from his remarks to your class? Yeah, it was interesting because the week before uh, Lance Armstrong came, we had Travis Tigert uh, from U.S. Anti-Doping Agency here in Colorado. Um, and they prov- provided very interesting perspectives. Um, Tigert was focused on enforcing the rules of anti-doping. And Lance Armstrong told us, well, those may be the rules, but the rules of cycling that I followed and all my peers were different. Um, Again, this disconnect. This this great disconnect. Um, and Armstrong was, was at once... Um, defiant, um, but also apologetic. And it was clear. Um, Wait, to, defiant about what, though? That if he had to do it over again, he would have done the same thing. Um, that everyone in the peloton, he says, um, if you wanted to be in the race, you had to participate in this doping. They did not see it as cheating. Well, then how can he be contrite at the same time? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, Armstrong uh, was, was very open about how he treated people. Um, he was he was he was less apologetic about the doping than he was about the path he took to get to to winning seven uh, tours de France, uh, and so he was apologetic and said he shouldn't have treated people that way. And maybe if he had been a better person, like many of the other dopers of that era, uh, he wouldn't have fallen so far. Um, mm. We could debate that, but uh, that was the perspective he brought to our students. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Roger Pelkey Jr. helped found the Sports Governance Center at CU Boulder, and his forthcoming book is called The Edge, The War Against Cheating and Corruption in the Cutthroat World of Elite Sports. You can get a sneak peek. There's an excerpt at cprnews.org. Coming up next, CPR's Ben Marcus digs into record fines for oil and gas drillers. Then, CPR's Corey Jones digs into pieces of public art that make people go, hmm. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Oil and gas drillers received a record number of fines last year, twice as many as 2014, and fines are on pace to double again this year. CPR's Ben Marcus reports that small companies get the biggest fines. The owner of one of those small companies, John Teff, recently found himself in front of the state's nine oil and gas commissioners. These are the final arbiters of punishment in his industry. Teff owns CM Production, and he couldn't contain his frustration. I'm not the only frustrated operator. There's many small operators who are just flat irritated with this system. Teff had just listened to regulators make the case against him. They argued that he repeatedly failed to clean up his drill sites, that he failed to pay past fines. So they dropped the hammer, proposing to take away his right to drill and pay total fines of more than $700,000. We have no ability to pay these huge astronomical fines. Teff claimed during the hearing that regulators were using astronomical fines to put small drillers like him out of business, but he failed to present any evidence, and the commissioners ruled against him unanimously. Later at his Lakewood office, Teff was upset. I think the commission recognizes that we've got limited funds and they'll target us to make examples out of us until they run us out of money. And money is especially tight in the energy business these days because prices for oil and gas have plummeted. 
A review of data by CPR found it is true that the smallest operators are the ones absorbing millions in penalties. Even industry insiders have never heard of some of these companies, like Adam Petroleum. They produced only five barrels of oil in five years. $240,000 $240,000 in penalties. Benchmark Energy, they produced more water than oil. $2 million in fines. What about Colorado's largest driller? Anadarko produced 40 million barrels of oil last year, and they paid less than $40,000 in fines. But is this evidence that regulators are targeting small companies, as John Teff alleges? Well, that's not true. Matt Lepore is the chief regulator at the Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. What is true is the operators who don't have the ability to take care of the environment often are small operators who don't have the capital, who don't have the personnel, and so forth. It's also true that the state now has more inspectors and legal staff. They're finding and prosecuting more cases. And a sea change came about three years ago when state lawmakers increased maximum penalties for the first time since the Eisenhower administration. Representative Mike Foote from Boulder County helped lead that effort, responding to outrage from his district against the industry. Sure, Colorado's drilling rules are tough, but Foote says those rules are there for a reason. Absolutely. They're there because they're supposed to protect the health and safety of Coloradans. And if a small operator or a big operator or someone in between violates the rules, they should be dealt with the same. But small operators like John Teff say that regulators have become too aggressive, even threatening to take away the right to drill if an operator is deemed a repeat offender. Colorado's chief regulator, Matt Lepore, says that observation has some truth to it. Perhaps we didn't take these to the final conclusion that we're taking them to now, which is, yes, indeed, we are going to impose a penalty that's very large. Lepore is quick to point out that drillers are given time to clean up their mess. In some cases, penalties are forgiven if an operator does what it's told. And Lepore says that large companies tend to be proactive, reporting and fixing problems. Surprisingly, the drilling industry supported the bill that toughened penalties, primarily because it was hard to argue for fines that hadn't increased in half a century. Doug Flanders does policy and government work for the Colorado Oil and Gas Association. If somebody's going to operate in a manner that is not compliant with the rules and they know they're not being compliant with the rules, we, that, that's not an operator that, that we need to have in the state. But Flanders still doesn't want to see small drillers go out of business because they perform an important function. They take over abandoned wells and some even pioneer new locations. John Taff with CM Production is not sure if his company will survive the fines. But he is sure he'll never buy an oil well in Colorado again. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. The first time Bridget Young drove through Loveland, something caught her eye. They are heart sculptures in a variety of different patterns. Young lives in Lafayette. Her two sons go to Colorado State University in Fort Collins. And Young passes these heart sculptures every time she visits them. They're scattered throughout Loveland, and each is painted with a different design. It is intriguing. Every time we drive through, we look for these. We ask our family members to point out their favorite ones. And I was just curious what the story behind them was. So we had CPR's arts reporter, Corey Jones, look into this. He's exploring public art and funding for the arts. And as part of that coverage, we asked you to send in photos of and questions about public art that you encounter. And Corey, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. 
What's the deal with these painted hearts that Bridget Young sees? Well, it turns out there are 26 of these sculptures in Loveland, and they're all part of a program called City with Heart. It's overseen by the Chamber of Commerce, and President and CEO Mindy McLuhan calls Loveland the Sweetheart City. So hearts are a natural fit for the community, and businesses love to pick up that theme and then put their own distinctive artwork or creative design. So here's how it works. A business or a group purchases these big white fiberglass hearts and the program pairs them with an artist. Together they create a design, the artist goes to work, and then the hearts get installed outside the building. Uh, we're talking banks, churches, and more. For example, Stan's Auto Service mm-hmm. has one that depicts classic cars. Uh, the chamber plans to print an updated map so that people can find all these. Okay, so the businesses pay for these heart sculptures. How much are we talking? $3,500. I'm told the Chamber of Commerce doesn't really profit off this and that most of that money goes to the program to cover the cost of the actual hearts and shipping them. So for the city, it's more about quality of life and uh, supporting artists in Loveland. But one thing to note, only about $500 goes to the artist for supplies and compensation. I I asked McLuhan if that was a fair wage for artists. They do this for the love and then as well as getting their name out there and having one of their hearts on the heart map. So it's also notoriety. To pay them more, we'd have to mark up the price of the hearts. And, you know, people just don't want to pay that much for a heart that we have found. McLuhan did say she doesn't think $500 is enough for artists, but she adds that if businesses want a design that requires more work, well, they can pay artists for extra. But it's funny how often artists are asked to work for the love of their craft. Mm. If you're curious about what these hearts look like, you can see photos at cprnews.org. So we recently asked what public art means to our listeners through the Public Insight Network, where you can help inform the stories that we cover. And we've had quite a response to that question. Um, Corey, you've seen photos comments. What are you learning from the responses? Uh, So first, uh, we heard from quite a few people in Lafayette about their public art collection. Lafayette has programs that not only install pieces in the streets, but there's also this effort called See and Respond. It asks other artists to create new works like paintings or even poems uh, inspired by these public art sculptures. So Lafayette is one city that we'll be keeping an eye on. And we also heard from listeners in other parts of the state that we want to visit, like the Western Slope. You also asked our audience whether they support public money going to the arts? A fundamental question there. What have you heard? Yeah, and of course, this is where you get a range of opinions. For example, Christian Matthews in Fort Collins says he opposes tax dollars going to the arts. He thinks that money should pay for things like roads, bike lanes, and to make spaces more accessible for people with disabilities. Uh, Matthew says those are bigger priorities. We also heard from Julie North in Denver. She says public funding for the arts is an investment in different communities, and she sees public art as a great reason to get out and explore explore new parts of town. Here's North. I had no idea that there were so many neighborhoods in the Denver metro area, and you don't even know that you're in another neighborhood until maybe you see art, and you're kind of like, oh, that's a reflection of this neighborhood, and that's something that that neighborhood is proud of. North also sent us a photo of one of her favorite wall murals in Denver. It's actually a recent engagement photo, Ryan, of her and her fiancé. It's great. They're kind of standing in front of their favorite mural. You have to check this out at cprnews.org. And while you're there, we want you to pick from three public art pieces that some of you shared. And we'd like to look into one of them. So tell us which one you think it should be. Mm. Uh, Corey, I understand you'll also do more reporting on a cultural tax in the Denver area. Yeah, so this can get confusing, as we heard from some 
some listeners. So I just want to be really clear on something. You know, this reporting project is looking at a couple things. One is public art programs, some of which are funded by cities. So I'm talking the entities behind the sculptures and murals that you see out and about. Yep. But on top of that, we're also looking into arts funding. And this is where the Denver Area Cultural Tax comes into play. It's called the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, or SCFD for short. So this cultural tax, this is separate from public art sculptures. For example, the funds from SCFD go to specific nonprofit organizations. Think museums, choirs, dance companies, and more. Uh, And these groups use this money to support their own programming. That includes free days, for example, at places like the Denver Zoo. So not public art programs. And this is all important to know because of the upcoming election. Denver area voters will decide whether to extend SCFD in November. And then Larimer County uh, arts leaders, we just had a story last week, they just submitted a petition to get their own similar cultural tax on the ballot this fall. Anything else before we let you go? Uh, You know, just that I'm really curious what our audience wants to know about that cultural tax and any other questions that you have. And don't forget to check out CPRnews.org to vote on which of three public art pieces you'd like us to investigate. Those are really fun pictures up there on the website. And if you have other comments or a photo, email them to me, arts at CPR.org. Thanks, Corey. Of course. Corey Jones, arts reporter at Colorado Public Radio. Just ahead, a Western Slope chef on the ingredients he can and can't get locally. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a bumper crop of Palisade peaches this year, and Colorado chefs are eager to design dishes around them. Take the heirloom tomato and peach salad at bin 707 in Grand Junction, for instance. Head chef Josh Nurnberg says when he opened his restaurant in 2011, people wanted more local food, but he wasn't always able to find it. Farmers today, though, increasingly strive to meet the demand, says Wendy White, spokeswoman for the State Department of Agriculture. And Josh, Wendy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. Josh, how do the peaches taste this year? Oh, they're fantastic. Yeah? What makes them fantastic? Well, uh, we're just uh, kind of at the end of the cling peaches going into the freestones, and they are as sweet as they've ever been. Nice. Can you give us an example of how your menu has changed from when you first opened in 2011 and struggled to get local ingredients. Sure, absolutely. We, uh, we've always, you know, we opened the restaurant with the intent to serve as much local Colorado and domestic product as possible. Uh, emphasis on local first, which means that we wanted to really showcase the Grand Valley for an agritourism destination, show what's there. Um, in the beginning, there were not very many farms that really worked on that kind of a model. So that's changed significantly through the years. And you know, now our menu is such that we have probably, I'd say, 60, 70% of the produce that we use is from right in our own backyard. But that's in part because you've gone out and talked to farmers and told them what you need. Give us examples of crops that they are now growing with you in mind. Um, sure. So, you know, we, we've worked with a couple of different farmers with, you know, from our signature bin burger that we sell, you know, hundreds of a day. Uh, I've got a specific green on it. It's called Frise. Uh It hasn't always grown great in the Grand Valley. And we've, you know, one of the things that we've worked with is a challenge with one of our farmers to figure out how to do that. And did the farmer figure it out? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, yeah, it's worked great. Any other examples? I understand that there's a, a noodle dish yeah, so that we, you, uh, you've drawn on locals for. Well, so a lot of times what we end up with is uh, produce that we wouldn't normally use, and we try to find a way to use it. For instance, uh, okay. we use fava beans. We make miso out of fava beans. So we get a fava bean harvest from our friends at Field to Fork CSA, and 
we try to uh, make enough miso to last all year. And that's grown, you're saying, locally? Yeah. Uh-huh. Huh. And that would not have been true in 2011? Absolutely not. I see. So, Wendy, I'm curious, how rare or not are these relationships between chefs and farmers? Oh, we're seeing it definitely more and more um, over the years. So the uh, the popularity of buying local, both at the consumer level as well as the restaurant level, has really increased. And so not only are the relationships changing between the restaurants and chefs and the producers themselves, but so many of the uh, restaurateurs and chefs are becoming farmers and are growing food for um, their restaurants too. All right. So it's not just that farmers and chefs are separate people. Those are sometimes the same person. Exactly. You're, you're, you're seeing more We are, absolutely. And again, it really is driven by that consumer demand for locally grown and produced products. Yeah. Tell me more about what drove you to seek local products, Josh. You mentioned, I suppose, wanting to help the economy locally. Were there other things driving you? Our main purpose, we opened the restaurant in 2011, so we were in the middle of a down economy. um, And we were in Grand Valley, Colorado, which is, you know, never really had an agritourism driven economy. I I really felt that we were in a perfect part of the state to showcase what's there, the wines, the produce, everything. So we really did it as an economic driver, mm. create jobs and, you know, promote that. Was the environment part of this? Yeah, absolutely so. Um, you know, this was, I had been in the restaurant business in Denver for a long time and moving to the Grand Valley, I saw a need for something that really hadn't been there in the uh, before. Um, which was just an accessible, casual restaurant that just focuses on what we have. So it, you know, the environment was perfect to do what we did. We were definitely early to it. Um, you know, it, it is. I guess I mean like the environment, like eco, eco oh, sure. reasons. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the economic responsibility is huge. It's, it's, you know, it's uh, uh, eco like green. I'm, I, I'm not making myself clear. I'm sorry. To economic. Were there green reasons that you did this? Well, yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't want to say that we, we didn't focus on that. Uh, absolutely, it was not the primary driver. It was not the primary driver. So, Wendy, when a farmer agrees to raise a crop, grow a crop, you know, for, I don't know, a couple of chefs or something, is that economically worth it for the farmer? Well, there's, it just depends on their, their market opportunities they're looking at. So a lot of um, producers, they will, are growing product that is going to the retail market. Um, some producers diversify and do retail as well as direct-to-consumer through farmer's markets. And then a lot also um, either add in or f- solely focus on the chef and restaurant market. So it really depends on their interests and the markets that they really want to serve in their communities. Hmm. Are there other crops that we would be surprised are grown in Colorado? I think people are always familiar with, of course, our Palisade peaches and Rocky Ford cantaloupe, Pueblo chilies. Um, We're huge producers of carrots and onions. And so many times people forget about the 50,000 acres of uh, potatoes in the San Luis Valley. Um, So some of those kinds of things. And cattle and calves and beef is our top agricultural commodity in Colorado. Yeah, I think that if you asked someone about a Colorado carrot, no one would go, "Oh yes, the green." But we're one the of the top Colorado carrot. One of the top producers of carrots and lettuce in in the nation. Yeah, and potatoes often associated with Idaho, and yet many are grown here. As you absolutely. Say. Uh, back to the the ecological aspect of this, you, you can't help but think about water, though. Mm-hmm. So there may be some who seek local food because they would rather not have their 
produce flown in or drove in, driven in, pardon me, uh, burning fossil fuels. But you have to think about the water footprint of growing something in an arid climate. Talk about the balance there, Wendy. Well, it obviously takes water to grow and produce food for um, for everybody to enjoy and to have a safe, affordable, and abundant food supply that we're lucky to have in Colorado. Um, so local products absolutely take less time in transportation. A lot of what you see at the farmer's market and the grocery stores has been in the field less than 24 hours um, when when you see it there. Water, uh, farmers are innovative and they they are constantly looking for ways to use effective uh, and efficient ways to, to grow food, and that includes water. What are, what's an example? So, you, I wonder if you've seen any, Josh. Um, you know, so we've got the, the Colorado that runs through the Grand Valley, yeah. but, you know, that's really, f- um, you know, been the focus of what all of the farming has been. In the last year, we're starting to see uh, um, aquaponics farms popping up, which is, you know, closed loop, sustainable farming. You even reuse in use the water. Exactly. Which is, it's definitely new for the Grand Valley. Um, and it's, you know, it's got a promising future, I think. Wendy? And I think oh, something interesting that I've, I've seen also in the Arkansas Valley, uh, Rocky Ford Cantaloupe especially, are using drip ir- irrigation. So tape that's applied six to eight inches underneath the ground so that water is um, applied in smaller amounts but directly to each individual plant. And um, that has been, been a very effective use of, of water. Josh mentioned aquaponics. Is that the same as hydroponics? It's a, Aquaponics is a broader system, so hydroponics is more specific to plant production, whereas aquaponics includes also usually fish. So, I see. But it's using water only. Essentially, you're not using soil in that case, right? right? There's it's water and sometimes other kinds of amendments. It might be a, a coconut base or something that the plant can grow in. Interesting. But the idea is to reuse that water mm-hmm. and make the most of it. Um. I want to say that um, the the desire for local foods, is it necessarily that the food is more expensive? I mean, because you have to talk about cost here. Well, people are just, their demand for local products, wherever they shop and dine, is certainly increased over the years. And I think, um, you know, the, there's costs um, associated with growing food, but we still have one of the uh, most affordable food systems in the world. And we're lucky to have our producers being able to grow such a diverse range of products that we have available in the state. Okay. Not not quite clear. So does that make local food more expensive, less expensive? Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, You can, you know, it's very price competitive and our farmers work hard to provide food at a a cost that everybody can afford. Does this mean, uh, Josh, that you've had to raise prices, for instance, to pay for the farmers to do what they do or not? No, not at all. Um, Actually, kind of on the contrary. It's more cost effective for us. Uh, to work hand in hand so that, you know, say a farmer is growing something specifically for us, we know what that yield's going to be. You know, all of the other parts of that infrastructure aren't there. Does this mean, Wendy, that more of the food that is grown in Colorado is staying in Colorado? I mean, if you look at the balance sheet, does the local appetite for local food mean we're simply just sending less out of the state boundaries? I think it's, you know, there's a, the balance there because we are supplying a lot of our products to Coloradans to enjoy here. Um, but our producers are looking at export markets as well to help, um, you know, feed the nation and the world. So we do export uh, almost $2 billion worth of agricultural products on an annual basis. And that benefits our Colorado residents as well as the producers. Because the state is still advocating that uh, foreign 
nations and other states use uh, use our food. Right. We we promote um, our products uh, within the state, nationally and globally as well. Very quickly, Josh, anything you can't get that you'd like to get locally? You know, uh, five years ago, absolutely. Now, not so much at all. Not we a have, single thing? We have uh, access to, you know, some of the best products available, and that's the whole purpose of our menu is to showcase that as much as possible. Okay. So there's not there's not one you wish? You know, honestly... There's not. I wish there was more of it. Chef Josh Nurnberg owns Bin 707 in Grand Junction. Wendy White is spokesman for the Colorado Department of Agriculture. On a related note, there's an exhibit called Follow Your Fruits and Veggies Journey at the History Colorado Center in Denver. And you can check out Chef Josh's heirloom tomato and palisade peach salad at cprnews.org. Tomorrow, from eat local to drink local, we look at Colorado's growing wine industry. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.